A shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a bud shall blossom. This beautiful passage from Isaiah chapter 11 reminds us that our Lord God can indeed bring wonderful life from that which appears dead. Hello, this is Father Thomas once again, and welcome to another of the Sprouting Stump podcast series. In this series, we dive theologically and spiritually deeper into various topics of our faith that might need a renewal so the grace of God can blossom more fully within our hearts. In this talk for his new manna retreat, Father Thomas discusses the third phase of the new manna, the body of Christ, exploring manna as real presence. As I said, we're going to start off each section with prayer, so we'll go ahead and start off with the prayer again. Let's take a moment to quiet our hearts, our minds, and to allow ourselves to be in awe of the great gift of beautiful bread of life that has been given to us from above, that manna come down from heaven. As we enter into this third phase, we recognize that this is so much more than simply something to nourish us. It points to a greater reality, and that reality is God himself, a gift from our Father to us, in spite of our unworthiness. And so we ask the Lord to continue to bless us during this remainder of this retreat, that we can continue to open our hearts up to that outpouring of his love, and we respond to that love with the fullness of our hearts. Remember always that we are called to the divine life, and that we were made for more. So we ask for the grace to be more. We pray all this through our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are now into the third phase. And this is, of all the faces, the one that is the most difficult for people to accept. When you think of the people that are non-Catholics, they can imagine this idea of our Eucharistic meal as being like a meal. I mean, they even do that themselves. They'll pass bread around and things like that. So that's not too difficult. And the idea that it points to a greater reality is something they can still also appreciate. Because the idea of symbolism is part of our, our culture. But we start to recognize that what it's pointing to is not symbolic. It's pointing to the reality and it's contained, then things get a little bit tricky. So I'm going to go ahead and read from Scripture the very thing that people have a struggle with, where Jesus starts to mention what it means by the third face. The third face is, of course, the body of Christ. So we're looking at new manna as the real presence. Not a symbolism of the real presence, but manna as the real presence. And we hear from Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and giving it to his disciples, said, Take and eat. This is my body. In John 6, 51-55, And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. It's a hard saying back then. It's a hard saying for many people still today. So we're going to enter into that hard saying and realize just how beautiful it is. But first, they are going to sing the Holy Spirit. Amen. Becomes free and 
song about the Holy Spirit. I got my person's confused with the Trinity, don't I? <laughs> the Holy Spirit makes it happen. Holy Spirit makes what happen? The Eucharist, the body of Christ. Exactly. In fact, the Holy Spirit makes everything about Jesus happen because the Holy Spirit is what? It's God. All right. Okay, we've got third person of God, he's God. What else? It's the breath. The holy ruach. Okay. What's the most important aspect about the Holy Spirit? It's life. How does it give life? Or he give life? What, what allows <coughs> the Holy Spirit to give life? What gives the Holy Spirit the power to give life. He's God. He was sent by Jesus. The love between the Father. The love between the Father and the Son. That's the Holy Spirit. And it is that love between the Father and the Son that empowers the Holy Spirit that gives it its ability to be able to bring about life. Because if you were to listen to one of my other talks that I gave about love, <laughs> love always does what? The fruit of love is always life. Remember I said before that something's not growing, it's dying. Love must make growth possible. So that Holy Spirit is empowered because of that love between Father and the Son, and which allows things to come to light. So the Holy Spirit is that kind of that breath of life that we're talking about because it is love itself. So wherever the Holy Spirit gets poured out, life generates. And when God first created Adam and Eve, what did he do? Breathed into him, right? Gave him the actual his very spirit poured into him. That breath of God is nothing more than what? The breath of God and the exhaling of what? Love. Of love, himself, actually. You can almost say the Holy Spirit is unique because the Holy Spirit is the fullness of the Father and the Son. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we're receiving the fullness of the Trinity because it is an exchange of love between Father and Son. Well, the Father and the Son cannot exchange a part of themselves. They always exchange all of themselves. Remember we said when the Father gives, he gives what? Completely, right? So yeah. if the Father is giving completely to the Son, and the Son's giving completely back to the Father, and that's what makes the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit contain? The fullness of the Father and the Son. It's kind of unique if you think about that. So the fullness of God is contained in every person of God because of that dynamic of that exchange going back and forth. That's why we say all of them are God. But we do not say it backwards. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. 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 The Father is God. God. Can I say God is Father? No. Can I say what? Yes. Oh, yes. Uh oh, the fighting. All right. Okay. Good. Good. Battle here. I like when people battle out. No. Okay. I say Father is God. If God is Father, does that make sense? Yeah. How many of you agree with that? You're like, ah, I'm not sure which way I want to go. And then I say, the other means are going to praise me. If you say that God is Father, you're wrong. In order for God to be God, it has to be what? In order for love to exist, it has to exist as what? Three. As, three's a number. Three. I got three apples and have no love. So it's not the number, it's the... What's taken on? What's going on between? That exchange is what? Exchange in order to have an exchange of love, it means that you are in relationship. Relationship, yes. You're in relationship. So God cannot be Father by itself because Father by itself cannot be in what? 
relationship. A relationship. So for in order for you to say God is, you have to say God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't say anything less. So the Father is God because he contains the fullness of that relationship within himself. It's kind of unique. But you can't say God is Father because you're missing out on the aspect that actually makes him God. If you were to take out the Holy Spirit, God doesn't exist. If you took away the Son, God doesn't exist. If you take away the Father, God doesn't exist. You can't have one, you can't have two, you have to have all three. And that's what makes God. So God is family and relationship. Now this is significant for understanding what's happening here, because now we're entering into that third phase. And so we're dealing with the idea of what? We said manna as? Real presence. Real presence. Mm -hmm. Whose presence? Because it surely isn't mine. God's, God's presence. presence. Specifically, Jesus. well, we have to also be careful. It's God's presence, yes, but we have to be which part of God's presence? Yeah, you can spit it out. It's okay, Mary. It's like laughing. Okay, so when we're taking in the new man, are we taking in the Holy Spirit? Yes. This is going to be good, right? We're going to have a theological debate here. Yes, we're going to go deep here. Yes. But the real presence is the body and blood of Jesus. Jesus. It's not the body and blood of the Father. It's not the body and blood of the Holy Spirit, because they don't have body and blood. Only the Son of God has the body. But, however, within one is all. But what we receive in the host is actually only the second person, but still contains the mystery of the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's kind of unique when these things it is and it isn't. So it's one of these things like that throws us all for a loop. That's what's so beautiful about God. He's a walking paradox. <laughs> it's this idea that you've got all of God without having all of God. Because you have the fullness of God's love, like I said, contained within that. But we don't say that you're receiving the body and blood of God. We say specifically you're receiving the body and blood of Christ, of Jesus, of the Son of God. The one, the second person of the Trinity. Because the Holy Spirit didn't die for us. And the Father didn't die for us. But their love is contained within the sacrifice of Christ. It's kind of amazing. So, yes, now your head's going to start spinning and say, which one is it? It's, it's both and. It's either or. It's one of those things where it is and it isn't. It depends on what perspective you're looking at here. But we need to recognize, though, that it's not the fullness of God that you're receiving in the host. It's the fullness of Jesus receiving the host. But the Father and the Holy Spirit participate in the love of Christ. And so, therefore, you get aspects of them, but not the fullness of them. So it's like you're getting God without getting all of God. So like explain. It's no wonder some people are like struggling with this whole idea. That's even harder to comprehend than the idea of eating Jesus. And part of the reason why they struggle with this idea of eating Jesus is because of this type of, of stuff. Like, how do you possibly expect us to do that? So you're trying to say that we're supposed to consume you to get life. Now, we all take that for granted, but could you imagine people before the Gospels were written, and somebody walks up and says, you know, I'm like a, I'm a pretty cool guy here, like, you gotta, like, eat me in order to have life, you gotta drink my blood. I mean, it's like, what would your reaction be back then? Like, probably almost the same thing. I was like, this guy is like, was really like, I could handle up to now? This is a bit much. And we have to admit that would be very difficult because we we can't look at them in our, through our eyes. We grew up with that understanding or we became accepted because we're not being told by a human person that's standing before us, you've got to eat of my flesh. He didn't say you've got to partake of me spiritually. He said, basically, the words he used were, you've got to cannibalize me. I mean, we're, we're talking cannibalism and vampires here with, with, with Jesus. And so it's no wonder they kind of freaked out a little bit. But that's the reality that the second face is pointing to. The Eucharist is pointing to the reality of the real presence. So now we've moved into that third face that takes us a little bit deeper. Because now we're not looking at food, we're not looking at symbol, we're looking at the reality of God himself. And this is something that we all speak about, but it's so difficult for us to totally grasp what's happening here. 
When we say real presence, what does that mean? Have you ever described it as somebody that was a non-believer that didn't understand the Eucharist? How would you describe them what exactly we're receiving? Well, what would you say? Oh, that's Jesus, right? They're going to look at you and say, that's a priest of bread. So we say Jesus, and we talk about, what were those first four things we always say? Body, blood, Body, blood soul, and divinity. I don't know why we say it like that. I don't know why we just don't say the humanity and divinity of Christ, because the humanity includes body, blood, and soul, but maybe it sounds cool to have all four of them. So we got body, blood, soul, and divinity, which means the fullness of Christ's person, right? Now, how do you explain the reality of that? Because they're still looking at a host. They're saying what I see is a piece of bread. You're saying that's Jesus. How can Jesus' body be there and it not be there? It's a mystery. Well, you have to have faith, but you also have to have some mental understanding of what's taking place. I mean, faith isn't going to automatically make you believe everything just because somebody says it. There has to be something that we are able to comprehend. So we have to look at this and say, okay, now God can do anything, right? At least anything within his nature. God can't do something against his nature. So when we say God can do anything, you have to specify what anything means. God cannot split himself apart. God cannot do something that is contrary to the principle of love. God cannot not extend himself beyond himself. I mean, there's certain things God can't do, and he may, can't make a circle a square. Okay, because it's a circle, it's a circle. So we have this idea of, we say, the body, blood, soul, and divinity. So that's what Eucharist points to, the reality of the presence. But how do you, how do you understand that presence? I actually got into a little bit back and forth dispute with somebody because I said, okay, he's present, but he's not present. I mean, if somebody were to say, well, he's really present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, why doesn't he weigh 163 pounds? Maybe Jesus was 174 or 183. All I know is it weighs a couple of ounces, right? So if his body's there, why is it only weighing two ounces? Well, when I break it, it doesn't say, ouch. How come it doesn't bleed? Well, some of you are going to say it does bleed, actually, in some cases. However, but on average, when I break it at the altar, I've never seen it bleed. It just makes a big snapping noise. So how do you describe this to somebody and say, this is the real presence. You, know, you just got to have faith. Well, they're going to look at you and say, you expect me to believe that God is contained in this. Why? Because he said so. Okay. So maybe before we can describe the reality of it, we have to describe why there would even be this reality. Most people can agree that God's a loving God, right? I mean, some people argue with that, but for the most part, most people, if you at least explain that you have a belief in a God that's loving, that's not so difficult. Love always seeks what? Unity. Okay? Unity through what? How does it, how does it make unity? In order for you to be united to something, what, must, what characteristics must be the things that have been united. They have to be in relationship. They have to be ours. Can any of you unite yourself to a fish? You can eat it, but I'm united with the fish. <laughs> the answer is no. You can't be in unity with a fish. Don't even try it. Okay, why not? Because different species. They're different. <laughs> You can't enter into unity with something that are different from each other because unity implies the similarity. The characteristics have to be the same or else we end up with a mix. Things have to be similar. Okay, so we said God seeks unity. God seeks unity with what? Himself. He doesn't seek unity with himself because he already is, so he doesn't have to seek that. All right, with who? With us. with us. Okay, God seeks unity with us. But we are what? Yes, but we are humans, correct? And God is? Divine. So we got divine and we got human. Can you unite that which is human with that which is divine? We cannot. We cannot. Jesus God can't either. He has to do something special. See, her, our humanity is contained within God. But God is not contained within our humanity. We're made as likeness and image, but we don't contain the divine ourselves. So somebody says, well, God made Jesus human and divine. He already included, humanity was already within the context of the God because God is all in all, right? So humanity already existed within God. 
So, when he made us, he made us outside of himself. We are not God. We are a creation. So, now God wants to unite with us. He's got a divine being. He wants to unite with a human being. How do you possibly do that? He has to become one of us. He either has to become one of us, or we have to become one of him. You know what I mean. Okay. Which means... He has to come down. We have to go up. So, in order for us to become more divine, we need what? Grace. Grace, which is another word for what? What is, what's the definition of grace? God's love it is. A very simple answer. You don't get it. God's love with God's freely given love. That's it. That's all grace is. Nothing more. It's simply the outpouring. Everything God, we have all these different terms for it. Blessings, grace, this, that, and the other. It's all one thing. It's himself. When God loves, he's not doing, we have to love by giving something outside of ourselves. When we love, what do we give? Ourselves. No, because we are not love. We are given what? No, affection is simply an emotion. We're given love and something more. What does John say is the definition of love or reverse it? Three, three words. God is love. Okay, God is love. And we said the source of all goodness comes from God. If you are giving love, you are giving God. God. All right. Way to go. (laughs) You're actually giving God. So any act of love is actually a sharing of the divine life within you. You can't love without God being a part of it. Even atheists are giving God when they do an act of love. They just don't want to admit it. Because, as Carol said, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. So we all have that flowing within us. We just block it, like we said. So love wants to unite. And it does this by trying to bring us more similar to him. So in order for us to be able to become more like God, we have to have what? We already said the word grace. How do we get this grace? Okay, well... We have to do more than ask. Let's go back to the, the, the people in the desert. They asked for stuff and God gave, but they always had to participate in whatever they were asking about. Remember, what did they have to do with the manna? They had to gather it. They had to gather it. You didn't just pop it on the doorstep or put it in the bowl. They had to go gather it. They had to participate in the gift. Because that's what love does. It doesn't just offer itself. It always does what? What does love always demand of the other? Commitment, giving. Okay. That's all true. But there's something that people don't think about. Love always demands perfection. You're thinking, what? I'm not there. I didn't say that in order to to love you have to be perfect but love always demands perfection why because love always seeks what i'm getting a good question about love 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 this is i'm trying to get to understanding of how we can get a better understanding of why we have the real presence okay love i said demands perfection why would love demand perfection when you love somebody what do you want for them Best. The best. Okay. What is the best? When something is the absolute best, we call it perfect. Okay. So now you see how this works? If love always desires the best, then that means love must always desire that which is perfect. And it's not a reasonable demand. Now, God says, I want you to be perfect so that why? Why would he want us to be perfect knowing that we're mess ups? So that we could what? Be more like him. If we're more like him, then what does that mean? Okay, so if we get more like him, we're more perfect. But what did we talk about before? This whole started with the question about how, what, God wants to be in relationship with us, to unite with us, right? Okay. And so therefore, to unite with God, you have to be more like God, right? Okay, if you think about being in a relationship, the more you're like something, the more you can enter into union with that thing. What does that mean for us? 
If we want complete unity with God, we need to be God-like. Exactly. And God wants to be in union with us. God wants us to be God-like. He wants us to be perfect. Now, in order for us to reach perfection, we need what? His life in us. His life within us. Exactly. Now, how many of you loved your spouse on your wedding day and you decided that was enough and for the next 30 years you decided, you know what, you got it on a wedding day, okay, that should fulfill you for the next like 30 more years, okay, you good, honey? Maybe I'll make you dinner like our 50th anniversary, but after that, something's like, how often do you give your love to your spouse or your children? Well, so you say. Okay, so we at least <laughs> then at least it's our desire. You want to constantly pour out your love to your spouse. We don't always do a good job, but it's constant. You never say, you know what, honey? It's Tuesday between like one and three o'clock. The whole love thing's going out the window. Yeah. Now you might act like that, but the truth of the matter is that's not really what you're desiring. So at what point does God want to stop pouring out His love to us? Never. 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 So. If God wants us to be perfect and notice we're not, how often does he have to pour himself out to us? All the time. All the time. Now, the way God works is he just doesn't dump it all into our hearts. We have to participate in that, remember? So, if the Israelites had to collect manna in order for them to receive the gift of God, in order for them to have their grace and ability to be able to get to the promised land, what does that mean for us? We also have to do what? Collect manna. We have to collect the manna from heaven, the new manna, Take it into ourselves so that we could be strengthened with that gift from above in order for us to get to the promised land. Now, the reason why he gave a manna was now we're into the third reason why he gives a manna. To remind them of his presence with them. When they went out and they saw that manna, it was their way of saying, this is not a bird. It can't be. Every single morning we get this wonderful gift spread out on the ground. And you know what's neat? They moved about, they were in the desert. It was like dew. Now, how often do you see dew collecting on a bunch of sand? I don't see it very often. And no matter where they went, it was there. It wasn't like they were in this ideal condition. So when people talk about, oh, this was a natural phenomenon because this type of stuff grows naturally in these regions. Have they seen a desert? That grows is irritation and cactus or whatever it is. But the point is this stuff would not be growing where there's no water. Remember they were often complaining about not having water? So it was dry and dusty. So everywhere they went, manna was there to remind them of God's continual presence with them. No matter where they went, no matter what they did, no matter how they behaved, what was always there? Manna. That meant what was also always there? God. And so we see this third face as the body and blood of Christ also to point with the idea that God is always present to us. Because we need that presence in order for us to be what? Perfect! We need that constant outpouring of God through us. And like the people in the desert, God just does not make us perfect. He only did that with one person. We know who that was. She got lucky. I mean, she was like, oh, wow, I got that whole cool, I got like the perfect stuff, man. I'm like, awesome. (laughs) We have to work a little bit harder at it. But we have the ability to get there because of his continual presence. Now, if God is love, we already agreed to that, right? Yes. And we're saying that the real presence that we have is who? Jesus. Jesus. It's Jesus, and Jesus is? God. God. Okay, so that means we have God's continual presence. That means we have God's continual Love. love. So love actually emanates from the body of Christ. It not only is something that we can partake of, it actually emanates from the body of Christ. Because it is God. And God's love never stops emanating. So he is present to us in a very special way. And that love is what constantly is flowing out from that, which allows us to become more like him. The reason why God comes to us in a host is because he wants us to be able to enter into relationship with him in the only way that we are capable through our interaction. Now, God's not going to come down in person and hang out with every one of us. You know what that would kind of be like? We'd all have our own little personal Jesus. That would just seem kind of odd, wouldn't it? Oh, how's your Jesus doing today? Oh, well, he's sitting at home right now, a little bit bored. There's nothing on TV. I mean, he's not going to have seven billion himself running around, so he gives us another opportunity to have his presence be with us that we can actually grasp. 
that we can participate in. So when people say, why would God come as a host? It says, because then you are able to actually do something with it. Because how many Jesus were there? One. Okay, you know how much it would throw off the whole Christian faith if we saw like 7 billion people claiming to be Jesus running around because everyone wanted their own personal Jesus? That would be even odder than what we're claiming about the Eucharist. So God has to give us some way for his presence to be with us constantly so that we have the constant outpouring of his love right there that we can participate in in order for us to become perfect so we can enter into unity with God. The only way he can do this is through that sacramental grace of the Eucharist because that's the only way that we can interact with God that we can understand and deal with and God still be God. Because there's only one Jesus. He's not going to clone himself. It doesn't work that way. And he's not going to come down to us as a piece of fish that we actually have to cook and eat because that would just kind of get stinky in mass. So he comes to us as bread so that we can partake of that. There's another reason, though, and this will become the fourth face, so I don't want to jump the gun here a little bit. But what do you do with bread? Besides, like, may sit it on your shelf and then forget about it and it gets moldy. Okay, what do you normally do with bread? You eat it, right? Okay. When you're eating something, what are you doing with it? Chewing. Okay, before you chew it, you have to do well with it. Put it it inside yourself. So now we have this understanding that God wants to actually participate in your life by entering into you in a unique way. And the only way that he sees to do this, that is not goofy, I'm going to throw people off even more. Remember something. God does things so that we can grasp the reality of it. So he's not going to do some strange thing that just doesn't make any sense. He's not going to have like little Jesus things that we have to like put on a grill and eat his flesh in that way. So he does it in a way that we can actually do it without like getting grossed out. And we can actually do it, you know, practically. Because God is a practical God. So he doesn't want refrigerators up there. That, you know, he wants so he comes to us as bread so that we can take that into ourselves. So the first thing we do with it is we take it into ourselves. So the real presence... Is something now that we can take into ourselves so that we can experience the fullness of God's love. love. So that we can become like God. So we can become love. Exactly. So we're starting to describe to people what how why do you possibly even believe this nonsense that this is that that would be God? And you can start to talk to them about their understanding of love because people's understanding of love is universal. If you were to ask anybody, no matter who they are, no matter even the most hardened criminal, What do you want more than anything? What is their answer going to be? To be loved. No matter who they are in the world, if they're honest, they want to be loved. In fact, the reason why we have so many hardened criminals is because they're not getting the very thing they long for. Atheists want to be loved. Buddhists want to be loved. Jews want to be loved. Catholics want to be loved. Protestants want to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved. Murderers, rapists, porno people, everybody wants to experience love because we are made in the likeness and image of God. And since we are made the likeness of the image of God, we are made for love, and so therefore you can't escape it. So everyone longs for it. So since everybody longs for love, we can say, okay, you all long for love. But we recognize that the human person is not capable of giving us the fullness of love. How many of us love perfectly? No matter how much you love your spouse, have you ever walked up to your spouse and said, you know, dear, you love me perfectly. <laughs> Because as much as you recognize they trying, that we're limited. We can't. It's just not possible. We make mistakes. We do things. And even if we gave the best of ourselves all the time, we simply do not have it in us to love perfectly. <clears throat> to love perfectly means a complete denial of yourself. Absolutely emptying of yourself. And we just, we're not there. But God is there. So everyone wants to be loved. And so we have a God that wants to what? Love us, right? Okay, we already said that God is like awesome God. We would tell somebody God is awesome, that God loves us. I mean, people at least can comprehend that. So God wants us to experience that love. Well, in your relationship with somebody, in order to express your love, what do you have to give them? Yourself. You give yourself. And the way you experience that, in one relationship with somebody, at what point are you are you experiencing their love the most? When you are what? Talking on the phone, texting each other? Yeah. When you are with them, right? When you can experience them, because then you can interact. There's something special about that. No matter how much you say you love somebody over the phone, when you're with them face-to-face, it changes the whole dynamic of our relationship. 
Now, God made us. We understand how he operates. Even God was made for that personal interaction. Because God is that personal interaction. He's constantly pouring himself out in that presence of each other. So he knows in order for us to experience the fullness of his love, he has to be present to us. We have to find a way to interact with him. But we are human, and we're talking about a divine person. If we were to stand in the presence of God as a human being, without something to kind of buffer that, what would happen? Basically, yes, we can't be in the presence of God without something to make us, get us to that point. So, Jesus is the intermediary to get us to that point. So, remember what we said before, Jesus comes as bread, he does what? He comes down. He lowers himself by entering the bread. So, because this is what love does. Love lowers itself for the one that it loves in order to elevate the other person. But as spouses, you lower yourself as servant to your spouse in order to lift them up. That's part of what marriage is all about. And so God lowers himself in order to lift us up. And as he's lowering himself, he's lifting us up, what happens? We meet. So God gives us this beautiful, real presence People say, how can you believe this? How can you possibly do this? Does it make any sense to me? I said, well, God wants you to know his love. And so he comes to you in a way that we can actually enter into relationship with, through our senses, by taking in something into ourselves and experiencing that. And the only way this can happen is through this beautiful gift of the sacrament. When you start to think about what love entails, it starts to make more and more sense why Jesus would do this. Because we need to take him into ourselves. Now, how do you take in God? As a human being, how do you take in God? Looks like you're like, I don't know how to take in God. God said, I know how you can take in God. Through the Eucharist, exactly. That's right. Through the real presence. We take in God by him giving himself to us in a way that we can take him in. He takes his divinity and his humanity and he sticks it in this little piece of bread. He transforms it and says, now there you go. Now you can have me, the fullness of me, in yourself without dying because I have actually contained myself in a way that you as a human person can take in. When you love a baby, how do you talk to it? I mean, like the Goo Goo Gaga talk, right? I mean, like get on the ground and you're rolling around and you know you're playing and you're Goo Goo Gaga and your brains go out the window and you're doing all kinds of making goofy face baby all kinds of stuff. You're interacting with the baby as a baby because it's a sign of love. So what you're doing is I'm willing to let go of part of who I am as an adult and become like a baby in order for a baby to experience my love. That's why when people talk to dogs, they bark. Well, that never really works because they have no idea what they're saying, but, you know, you tend to interact with different things on their level. And so God's interacting with us on our level. And like I said, it wouldn't make sense for God to come down and have an individual person running around because that would deny them the singularity of who Jesus Christ is as a human person. It would destroy the faith because now we have all these multiple Jesus persons, and that just is not how it operates. There's one Jesus. Jesus says, well, I can't clone myself and send out there, and I'm not going like, to bounce around from house to house on a different rotating basis, so I'm going to provide myself to you in a way that every one of you are capable of taking me into yourself that makes sense, is possible, is feasible, is practical, and points to reality of what love is all about. Allowing ourselves to be open to somebody else can enter in and letting them become a part of us. Isn't that what happens with food? Mm-hmm. Do you think it was an accident why God designed it that way? He made our entire process of the digestive system to reflect his divine love. You probably didn't realize that. His divine love is not an imitation of our digestive system. Our digestive system is an imitation of divine love. He made the human person to reflect the beauty of his relationship with us. And everything about us was built in such a way to point to God's love. The digestive system is one of them. We take in the reality of another person and they become a part of us. Isn't that what marriage is all about? Because that is part of the beauty of marriage. 
You open yourself up to the reality of another person so they can enter in and you lose yourself in that person and become a part of them so you're no longer two, but you are now one. Because that's what love does. It seeks unity by giving of self, seeking the perfection of another, by offering themselves completely without hesitation. And so now when you have a God who says, I can understand a God who wants to love me, and then you say, well, how would he do that? How would you expect God to love you? But the reason I'm bringing all this up is because of the fact that sometimes it's very difficult to really comprehend this idea of the real presence. Well, as I said before, and I asked, how many of you ever held that post and really just felt, I'm standing, I'm holding God? It's tough. I do it every day, and sometimes I'm looking at this host, and I'm thinking, Jesus, give me the faith to see you in this, because right now I'm seeing a host. I know you're there, but I'm just, I'm not feeling it. And every once in a while, he talks to me and slaps me around and says, you know what? You're just simply going to have to accept on faith, because I'm not going to give you the assurance of that. That's my own deal with Jesus, so that's... <laughs> <laughs> Strike that off the record there, so anyway... But I can comprehend the idea of him giving himself to me in a way that I can actually partake of. And that's what's so beautiful about this. So when people start to say, how can that be Jesus? Say, how can it not be Jesus? When you understand the idea of love, and they say, well, why would he do that? Because that's what love does. It lowers itself. It puts itself into a position, whoever the lover is, so the other person can actually partake of that love. You can ask somebody, well, how else would you, if you were God, would you give yourself to everybody in the whole world so that you can interact with them on a way that they could actually be their human self and still interact with you? How would you do that? I guarantee they're not going to come up with a good answer. Well, I feel God's love from the heavens. Oh, horse crud. I mean, what, what is that nonsense here? I said, is that the way you would talk to your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your, you know, your siblings or anyone else, your friend? Oh, you know what? I feel your love from a distance. I don't actually want to interact with you. We're good. I know that you're out there. You care about me. When somebody dies, what do we say? Well, what do we say about the person? When somebody dies, we say that they, we lost them. Haven't you ever heard that? You know, I always remind them, I said, they're not lost. They're just in a different location. God knows exactly where they are. So do they. But the point is we say that because there's a separation now, right? We can't interact with them. We're still in a relationship. How many of you have a loved one who's died? And I don't want to be morbid here, but we all have, right? Did you stop loving them? Well, how do you love somebody if they're lost to you? Unless, but you're still in a relationship, right? So they still have to be present. But there's something different, isn't there? So... We recognize that interaction with somebody is so critical to truly feel the fullness of love. Because no matter how much you love somebody, when they're not present to us, we can't experience that. And if we can't experience it, then it just becomes something foreign to us. Because we learn through our experience. You know, if you didn't have your five senses, you'd be like a table. You couldn't learn. Because there's no way for you to take in that information. So God comes to us in a way that we can take him in through our senses in order for us to be able to appreciate and to experience that because he wants to give himself to us, as I said, so that we can become more like love, to enter that perfection, that we can be united with him, which is his ultimate desire, because God is love and love desires unity of perfection. And so he has to give himself to us in that such a way. So it is the fullness of God without being the fullness of of Jesus. See, this is what's really tough. They say, remember, why doesn't Jesus say, ouch, when you bite him? I mean, it's body plus soul divinity, right? I don't know about you, but when somebody bites my body, I usually say, ouch, or something a little bit less appropriate for a video. <laughs> so why doesn't Jesus say, ouch, when you bite him? If it's body and blood, soul divinity, I mean, if it's a full humanity united with the divinity, why did he not, I mean, when he's on the cross, did he feel it? Yeah. When he was scourged, did he bleed? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that his body, we know, bleeds. He knows that he hurts. So why is it when we bite into that host, nothing happens? Because now you're going to have a hard time explaining to somebody else, how is it that if you're saying this is the body of Christ 
and I break him in half, and nothing happens. He doesn't feel a thing. Now what do we say? God have faith, right? Well, apparently they don't have it, so you're going to need to kind of work around with that. What's the second phase? Eucharist. Man as sacrament. Okay, so now we have to understand the idea of what sacrament is. We're saying he is present to us sacramentally. Now, this is kind of a mystery that even Catholics have a hard time understanding. He is fully present to us in a way that he's not fully present to us. Now, I realize that makes absolutely no sense. But his body and his blood and his soul and his divinity are all there. His humanity and his divinity is there, but in a sacramental way, meaning that what we have as the host, his point is, contains the reality without actually being the reality in a physical sense, but in a sacramental sense. Now that, you're going to have to dwell about it. I actually got into a little spat back and forth with Sister Therese Marie. She said, wait a minute, no, that's got his full body is there. And I said, because I was giving a homily once, and I said, that's, he's there, but he's not physically there. And she said, well, he is physically there because it's human body. And I said, well, if he's physically there, then why did he only weigh two ounces? And we got into a big back and forth. He's physically there sacramentally. And this is something to get our mind wrapped around. And the reason why I'm stressing this is because people are struggling to comprehend the idea of the real presence, right? Well, you know what's happening. The devil is starting to use something he doesn't do very often. He's starting to use reason to actually counter people's ability to understand the real presence. The devil's not a very reasonable guy. He tends to use fear and pride to get his way. But now he's starting to realize he's got to tackle this a little bit differently. And the greatest mystery of our faith is what? It's the Eucharist, the idea that God would actually come down to us in the form of a little piece of bread and be totally present to us and allow us to enter into that. I know I've got, what, two minutes left? It's a mystery that is almost impossible to explain. It's even more possible to fully grasp. But when you start to recognize the concept of what love is, it becomes the only thing that makes any sense. So even though we can't grasp the mystery, it's perfectly logical mystery because there's no other way for us to enter into that life with Christ except through this way. Now, he could have upped it one and gave us gummy bears, but that's a whole different story. But <laughs> So when we're trying to really grasp that, you need to start to look at this in a different light and realize what's actually taking place with that. Because you know what, as I said before, your mind says, I know that's Jesus. Our heart can be, you know, feeling that. But we need to appreciate the fact that God has given himself to us as a gift. When we say the real presence, it's God, okay? The very God that created the universe contained within that. The same God that hung on the cross is contained within that. Now, it's a glorified God but it's all there. The fullness of God's love is there. So this face takes us to a whole new level. It takes us to the reality of what it really that it is. That's the reason why we say it's the source and summit of our faith, because it's Jesus Christ himself. And if that really is Jesus Christ, and you take Jesus Christ out of the world, what happens to the world? It literally goes to hell. But Jesus said, I don't even want to be present to you only. I want something more. And now we're going to start leading into something more, because now this last part is like, awesome. The last part is like, <laughs> really, really good. <laughs> because in every one of these spaces, you know what's happening? We're seeing a little bit different Christ, and he's pulling us more and more into himself. It's not just new understanding, it's a new way of loving. So when you get to that fourth phase, you're going to hear things that are going to blow you away. But we need to first recognize the other three faces before the fourth face makes any sense. So every one of these faces is a trend, is a progression of understanding and of love. So when we talk about the body and blood of Christ, that's not even the best face. I said the Eucharist wasn't the best face. The bread of life isn't the best face. The best face is the fourth face. Because now we're starting to understand exactly what God wants for us. So, we've got a little activity that we need to do. We're on a relationship with God, right? <laughs> what kind of relationship? I would say that's only partially, that's only true, totally on one side. 
So we're not always in a relationship because we're not always loving God, correct? But we're always in a relationship. But we are all we are always in this kind of a relationship. It begins with the C. No, because we're not always in communion because we're doing sin. When you're in sin, you break unity, so therefore we're not always in communion. No, Old Testament. Start thinking about the idea of the desert journey. Covenant. Covenant. Yes, we are all in a covenant relationship with God. But what's one of the natures of a covenant relationship? It can never be broken. Only God can walk away from it because he establishes the rules for it. So we are always in covenant relationship with God. When did it start? Baptism. Baptism. Very good. It started our baptism. Okay, so started our baptism. It was strengthened in confirmation. And every time we go to receive the body and blood of Christ, it's a renewal of the covenant with him. Every single time. So now, you have to realize what exactly is that covenant? What is my covenant promise to Jesus? Has anyone ever thought about what your covenant promise is? How many of you know your wedding promises? At least have some idea of what you said. I mean, maybe you were like, like eh, I can't remember. I said something about, oh, maybe gentle as far as something. But you probably tend to know what they are. At least have an idea of what they are, right? Yeah. Have you ever thought about your covenant promise to God? I mean, you're in covenant relationship with him, and you don't even know what the terms are of the covenant. <laughs> Maybe you guys should, like, back at it or something and say, let me look at this negotiation here. Okay, so now so what you're going to write is your covenant promise to God. Now, it doesn't have to be anything lengthy. It's just somewhat relatively short. What is God's covenant promise to you? I will always be with you. I will, I will be forever. Yes, he says it, and there's a few different ways he says, I will be with you always, even at the end of time. But his favorite one that I, I love this, it's really hard for me to say this. I get choked up with this. It's just it's so beautiful when I hear this. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's his covenant promise to us. And because he is love, that tells us everything. So it can be something short and simple, but I would like you to all reflect on your covenant promise now to God. Because every time you receive Jesus in the real presence, what you're writing down is what you're saying is, that's my promise to you. Because we don't make a promise one time and then forget it. It's a promise that we're supposed to live out all the time. So now we should take a moment to explain what exactly is my covenant back to God. Because until we define it, we can't live it. If we can't live it, we can't be in it. Father would like you to take some time to reflect upon covenant renewal. He reminds us that our faith is one that revolves around covenant. Since the beginning of creation with Adam, to the days of Noah, to the time God called Abraham forward to become the father of a new nation, God has chosen to be in covenant with his people. He continued this with Moses and finally King David. Yet the greatest covenant God has made with his people is when he sent his son, Jesus, into our world. Jesus is the new covenant, and we are called in a special way, just like Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, to enter into a covenant with God. We began this special relationship with our baptism. We were recreated in this covenant through confirmation, and we renew this covenant in our breaking of the bread, the new manna. So now we take a few moments to renew our covenant promise by writing out a little prayer that is our way of telling God that he is our God and we are his people. Father would like us to continue to ponder this third face of the new manna. He points out, that it is this phase that at times may be the most difficult to fully grasp. As human beings dependent on our senses to learn new things, there is a limit to our ability to fully grasp the nature of the new manna as the body and blood of Jesus. While we believe we are not holding a piece of bread, our senses say otherwise. It is this reality that has many people walking away from the truth of this doctrine, just as many people walked away when Jesus first told his disciples they must eat his body. If we were totally honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that as much as we try, it is almost impossible for us to respond to what we see as bread but believe as Jesus, in the same way than if we were standing next to the physical presence of our Lord and could hear him speak, touch his hands, see his face, etc. 
We are a physical people living in a physical world, but being called by Jesus to step into a divine reality of which we have little experience, there is no question we need the very grace of the real presence to see in faith the real presence.